They were wonderful people. Wonderful. Everybody loved them. We, you know, we were raised in, you know, no household is perfect, but we were raised on a 30-acre ranch in Depew on Highway 66, and we all had, we all had horses. Deborah Wyatt recalled growing up in a small Oklahoma town about 40 miles southwest of Tulsa. She was one of three girls in the family. Their parents were A.J. and Patsy Cantrell. Daddy uh, was in the quarter, quarter horse business, and so, you know, we had everything, and we grew up happy. And my mom was always so happy. She made us all take piano lessons, and, and you know, Daddy, Daddy was a... He, played the guitar and fiddle and he was a uh, a singer and he he always was in some kind of country western band and we'd go listen to him play and then he'd have us three girls sing a song and you know just back then it was like you know ugh, country music but <laughs> but it wasn't what we liked but but we did it for him because you know he was so proud of us in january 2003 aj and patsy celebrated their 50th anniversary we had a big 50th anniversary celebration for him at the Methodist Church Activity Building. And Mom said, I don't know why you're having this, honey. I don't think anybody will come. And that place was bursting at the seams, that building. I mean, full of people all day long. That evening, she said, honey, I think it was the best day in my life. And I said, Mom, you didn't think anybody would come. <laughs> Look at all those people. But for the small town family, a year that started with celebration ended in devastation. They were murdered in October of 2003. You know, our whole happy childhood was just pulled out from under us because, you know, our parents were taken from us in such a horrific way. You know, we had them one day and the next day we didn't. And trying to figure out why that happened and, you know, how come it happened to them has just been a process that there's no answer to. For the Oklahoman and Gannett Media, I'm Josh Delaney. You are listening to Life After Death, Part 3, Murder Strikes Thrice. When we had their funeral, I thought, he's on the run. Nobody's going to come to their service because we scheduled for it to be at the auditorium in Depew. And that place, I mean, I think it seats 600 and there were 200 people standing. There was, you know, law enforcement everywhere, but I walked in and the entire stage was covered with flowers. And I'm talking about the stage that we all walked across to graduate, all three of us girls. And it was just, it was overwhelming. And I just said to myself, mom, you know, look, look at this. You didn't think anybody would come to your anniversary celebration, but look how they're coming to celebrate your life, you and daddy. And I just knew that it would be, you know, something that she would love. And it was, it truly was. In August of 2003, Scott Eisenberg was a 42-year-old drifter, a divorced alcoholic who had abused his ex-wife. Eisenberg took treatment for anxiety, depression, and thoughts of suicide. He was obsessed with an ex-girlfriend who had recently left him. According to reports, when the woman told Eisenberg she was moving out of their Tulsa apartment, he bound her with duct tape and held a knife to her throat. She survived and made it to Lawton, Oklahoma, about 200 miles southwest of Tulsa. 
Eisenberg later discovered his ex-girlfriend had returned to Tulsa. On September 13, 2003, she accused him of ransacking the Tulsa apartment they once shared. Prosecutors charged Eisenberg with second-degree burglary, malicious injury to property, and violating a protective order. On October 16, 2003, Eisenberg was released on bail. On October 17th, he failed to appear in court. He was in a rage over his ex-girlfriend telling authorities about a protective order violation. His ex-girlfriend's mother lived in Depew, across the street from AJ and Patsy Cantrell. On October 18, 2003, Eisenberg broke into the Cantrell's home, where he watched for his ex-girlfriend to return to her mother's house across the road. Eisenberg didn't know the Cantrells. We could have no idea that that's what he was going to, you know, use their house just to wait for her to come in across the street. You want somebody to be sorry, you know, for what they did and never, ever. He just acted like mom and dad just got in the way. You know, he was just having a bad day. The Cantrells came home that day. They were later found dead in the bathroom. A.J. Cantrell was beaten to death. Eisenberg testified that, while beating A.J., the elderly man was, quote, stubborn as an army mule. Why was he being so stubborn, unquote? Agitated by A.J. Cantrell's dying breaths, Eisenberg placed his wife's body on top of him with a gunshot wound to her back. You know, he talked about, you know, in his confession, he talked about, you know, how daddy wrestled for the gun and it went off and shot my mom in the back because he beat daddy with the butt of the shotgun until his skull collapsed. But neither one of them died instantly. He said in his confession, I put Patsy on top of the old man because I could still hear him breathing. And I was horrified by that. And I thought, you know, I just can't imagine if my daddy knew that mom was laying on top of him, you know, dead. I just, you know, it's horrifying to me. I think the one way I felt blessed was that they went together and that one of them didn't survive having seen the other one killed. Another comfort to Deborah, however small, is that her parents didn't die alone. Daddy had this little white chihuahua and he kept telling me, Debbie, you know, when something happens to me, uh, I, I need candy to be buried with me. And I said, Daddy, I don't think you can do that. But uh, he said, well, well, she won't be able to make it without me. And I know that he must have went off the deep end if he went in because that little dog was covered with blood and had one eyeball hanging out, a big cut on its back and one eyeball hanging out. And that dog was on top of their body, still trying to protect them when they went in and found them. Mm-hmm. And they had to call the uh, Kaiser, the veterinarian in Bristow, to come and remove the dog before they could get to their bodies. And that little dog lived, you know, for a while. But, you know, I keep thinking that little dog is the one that knows exactly what happened in the house. And, you know, it can't tell us. But, but yeah, it was, you know, it was really sad. Really, really, all of that was horrible. After he murdered A.J. and Patsy Cantrell, Eisenberg went to his ex-girlfriend's mother's house and shot his ex-girlfriend's 16-year-old son and beat the boy's grandmother. A 37-day manhunt followed. Eisenberg stole a woman's car and fled 200 miles east to Arkansas, where he ran out of gas. He faked an injury, duped a doctor and his wife and son into helping him, then held them at gunpoint while driving their van 300 miles south. When the couple talked Eisenberg into stopping for a restroom break, 
the doctor retrieved a pistol in his van and shot Eisenberg. Eisenberg fled about 10 miles away to Corrigan, Texas. He stopped at a food store to get help for his wound, but left. However, a store clerk described Eisenberg to authorities. They stopped him and took him to the hospital. There, they learned he was wanted for murder. Texas authorities arrested Eisenberg. If the pain of her parents' death weren't enough, death would strike Deborah's family once more. In early February of 2005, Deborah and her sister Marcia were preparing for Eisenberg's trial when deadly violence struck the family again. Linda, the youngest of AJ and Patsy Cantrell's daughters, was shot to death in Oklahoma City by her 49-year-old boyfriend, Freddie Wheeler, who then shot and killed himself. Beginning to end, I mean, we're talking my sister's murder. You know, we buried her on a Saturday and started the trial on that Monday in El Reno. So we really had no time to grieve for her even, but we begged them not to put off the trial because, you know, they could put off so long already, you know, and we just wanted to get that behind us. And we did, but, you know, I think I sat through that whole trial too, thinking Linda should have been right there by us, me and Marcia. All of us girls were about two and a half years apart. Linda was only 43 when she was murdered. And she was divorced. She never had a family. She didn't have any kids. But she was a she was a a daddy's girl. I mean, she was a tomboy. She'd go fishing with daddy and you know, whatever daddy liked to do. She she was so close to daddy, she said, you know, when they were murdered, she said, Well, I don't have anybody. I've lost everybody that loved me when daddy died. And, you know, she was just, I, I wouldn't have been surprised to have heard that Linda was killed in an automobile accident because of her use of drugs and alcohol or, you know, something like that. But, you know, to get the call that she had been murdered was just, you know, it just took my breath out from under me. You know, I had to be taken to the emergency room too. I couldn't breathe, I was hyperventilating. And the weird thing is, you know, we got, I got that call and I thought somebody was just playing a joke on me. And I walked in the bedroom and I seen on TV uh, a parent murder-suicide and it was showing the house that we had been there Christmas Eve and spent Christmas with her and her boyfriend, who I graduated high school with. But there was something about him that was just mean. And, it, you know, I, she was trying to leave him, but, you know, she didn't get, he wouldn't let her leave. Either he was going to have her or nobody was. And Mom used to always say, I want you girls to always be close. And I felt like I could have been that with Linda, but I also felt like, you know, I would take her in my home at any point. And I told her I would, but she would have to get sober, you know, and straight. And she didn't want to do that. She did not want to do that. <laughs> But she was beautiful. I know you've probably seen a picture of her too. She, yeah. she was, uh, you know, she was, she just was Linda. I mean, she just was, you know, she just was wonderful. Yeah. And I, I loved her and I miss her so bad all the time. It's this circle, you know, of life and death that has been around us like a, like a looming, you know, cloud sometimes.
With her sister murdered and buried, Deborah somehow mustered the strength to endure the trial of the man who took her parents' lives. He was a horrible, mean person. And, you know, I sat through that three-week trial and just longed to see some kind of remorse in his eyes. And there was never anything. He's got eyes just like Charles Manson. And it's, I don't think there's a soul there. I don't. Eisenberg is 59 years old. He is on death row in McAllister, Oklahoma, for the first-degree murder of A.J. Cantrell. He also received a 150-year sentence for the second-degree murder of Patsy Cantrell. In 2015, the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals split 2-1 to one to uphold Eisenberg's death sentence. Judge Neil Gorsuch, now a Supreme Court justice, wrote in his decision, quote, Scott Eisenberg left a Tulsa jail intent on settling a score. Several years ago, Deborah reached out to Eisenberg. I wrote him a letter. I wrote him a letter. It's been several years ago and told him that I forgive, forgave him. I wouldn't forget it. And I still believe that, you know, justice should be carried out for what he did, but that I wasn't going to let him hold me hostage for the rest of my life. And he wrote me a letter back and wanted to know if, you know, I would meet with him, you know, before he was executed. And, you know, I thought about it. I, it still comes across my mind that, you know, I don't think there was anything that he could say that would make me feel any better. You know, probably a lot of things that would make me feel a whole lot worse, and I don't need that. There were other things Deborah didn't need, including the family home, where her mother and father were murdered. Sold that property in town in Depute. It was my mom's. It belonged to my grandmother. It's where my mom and her brother and twin sister grew up. They're in that house in Depute. And one of the deals breakers was when we sold the house uh, that we got in mom's estate was that it be torn down and it was and it's not there anymore because I didn't want people driving by and saying that's where those people got murdered because you know it was a it was a happy home before you know it had a killer inside it Deborah is determined to have a most unusual family reunion struggling with multiple sclerosis at 64 years old. She is just a few years younger than her mother was when she was murdered. Deborah wants to live long enough to gather with relatives and watch her parents kill or die by execution. More than five years ago, executions were halted in Oklahoma because of last-minute mishaps. In 2014, prison officers shocked a convicted murderer, Clayton Lockett, with a taser. They found a self-inflicted cut on his arm in the hours before he was brought to the execution chamber. Medical staff had trouble finding a viable place to start an intravenous line to deliver deadly drugs. After 51 minutes of trying to find a spot to insert the line in Lockett's arms, legs, and feet, it was finally placed in his groin, and he was covered by a sheet to prevent witnesses from viewing the groin area. The execution was called off, but Lockett ended up dying, apparently of a heart attack, 43 minutes after the lethal injection began. According to reports, a doctor at the facility found the vein taking the deadly drugs had collapsed, and the drugs had either absorbed into the tissue, leaked out, or both. Soon after the botched execution, state leaders came forward asking for a moratorium on the death penalty. We want to talk about why the death penalty is not effective. We want to talk about the 
the, the, the protocols for the drugs now. That is truly the issue that's on the table. Regardless of whether you agree with the death penalty or not, the public has a right to know how we are carrying out this very grave responsibility on the part of the state. In 2015, the wrong deadly drug was used to execute Charles Frederick Warner, a convicted baby killer. In violation of protocol, Oklahoma Department of Corrections officials used bottles labeled potassium acetate for the final drug during the lethal injection. Officials were supposed to use potassium chloride to stop Warner's heart. Later that same year, on September 30th, 2015, a doctor discovered the wrong drug was supplied for the execution of convicted murderer, Richard Glossop. It was the same wrong drug delivered to corrections officials for the Warner execution. Glossop's execution was stopped. It has been over five years since the state's last execution. I can't imagine the grief and loss of the families and friends that are still mourning the murder of their loved ones. I believe capital punishment is appropriate for the most heinous of crimes, and it is our duty as state officials to obey the laws of the state of Oklahoma by carrying out this somber task. In early 2020, Governor Kevin Stitt and Attorney General Mike Hunter announced the discovery of reliable drugs and that lethal injection executions would resume in the Sooner State. The additions that we've made to the protocol simply add more checks and balances, more safeguards to the system to ensure that, to ensure that what has happened in the past won't happen again. The three drugs, midazolam, vicuronium bromide, and potassium chloride, are the same drugs in the updated protocol. They've been successful in the past, not only in Oklahoma, but in numerous other states. And they will continue to be just as effective as we continue with this method. Deborah Wyatt says she's been on conference calls with families who have waited decades for a killer to be executed. Like other relatives of the dead, Deborah suggested that murderers get most of the attention from media and anti-death penalty activists. Victims are forgotten. Says, well, it, it won't change anything, but you know, it'll be a close to a chapter in our life, a very painful chapter, and that that knowing that he's still breathing, you know, every day almost, it comes across my mind. You know, I wake up, and he wakes up too every day. Yeah, he's in prison. You know, he's on death row, but still, he's breathing. He took that opportunity to keep breathing from my parents. And he, he, he should be killed by firing squad. When the judge read him the death warrant, he put his head back and laughed. When the judge said if IV was not available in Oklahoma, they could also use gas, inhalation, or firing squad. And he put his head back and laughed. And I thought, you know, that's how he should die. You know, that's exactly how he should die. You know, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that didn't agree with that 100%. They think they should be taken the way they take, you know, the, the person's life that they're taking. I know I sound horrible, but, you know, 
I also am, you know, when we go to the execution, there are going to be people out there, you know, protesting at people that, you know, anti-death penalty people that don't want it to happen, you know, that will call, call us killers and, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, I didn't think I could ever sit on a jury that had the death penalty. I had discussed this with my mom and I don't remember what we watched, but I said, mom, I don't think I ever could. And she said, oh, honey, I don't know if I could either. But you know, you let it happen to you personally and it it turns your heart inside out and you feel a whole different way about everything. Everything. The Life After Death podcast series was written by Josh Delaney, produced by Paige Dillard and Nate Billings. <laughs>